we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We'll go through chapter 3, verse 5 tonight. Let's read it together. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the, in the truth. He called you to this through, through our gospel that you might, might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So once again, Paul uh, and his companions paused to thank God. In fact, the words that he used there, it's almost, it's almost he's, uh, he's really communicating that he feels an obligation to give thanks to God. He says, we ought always to give thanks. And he feels this sense of obligation uh, in, in seeing what God has done in the Thessalonians' lives that he needs to give thanks to them. And he talks about why he, he, he gives thanks. And he, he brings up the fact that God chose the Thessalonian believers to be among the very first to experience salvation. Now, uh, they, they were among the early believers in the church. They were the first believers in Thessalonica. And God had chosen them for that special privilege. But what's, what's interesting, the, the NIV translates a phrase there. And it says, uh, it, it says uh, because from the beginning God chose you. But that phrase, from the beginning in the NIV, it, uh, and I understand why they chose that in the translation, but other translations you'll see that that, uh, that that is actually translated as first fruits. And actually, I like that better because it still has the same idea <clears throat> of being early fruit of, of the gospel and so that they were still among the first to experience salvation. But what I like about first fruits is that that word also implies that the harvest is just beginning. The first fruits are the very first part of the harvest. And so when he, when he says that you're the first fruits uh, of the gospel, uh, then, then it implies that this, that this work of God is going to continue and that there's going to be a great harvest still yet to come in the future. And I think that's a big part of what he's saying there. And, he, and it's not just a great harvest of the gospel worldwide that he's talking about, but he's really even just talking, just saying, you're among the first to believe in Thessalonica, but I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged that your first fruits that there's going to be more Thessalonians that are going to that are going to or Thessalonians, I guess is how that what what the, the word they use um, that that are going to come to Christ. They're going to begin to serve Him, and so it's a word of encouragement, even in that. But in the process of talking about this salvation, Paul wants he does he doesn't doesn't want the Thessalonians to forget that that their salvation provides the only basis by which they have the assurance of escaping the day of Lord, because you know. Remember, this, this section tonight is really almost the transitional section going from what he talked about in the last chapter, the last what we looked at last week and the first part of this chapter and uh, what he's going to talk about next, what we're talking about next week in the next chapter. Uh, because if you remember, what he just finished talking about was the day of judgment. He just finished talking about the Antichrist. And so this seems like a pretty sudden shift, but what he's trying to say is, Yes, all these bad times are coming. This time of suffering, the persecution, that the day of the Lord is coming. But you need to know you have you know that you've been saved, and that salvation is your only assurance that you're going to miss all of that stuff. So, so Paul expresses thankfulness in that. But the thing about it is, and this is this is something I think is good for us to remember, is that Paul's gratitude 
was not based on what the Thessalonians were doing for God, but on what God did had already done for them. And, 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 you know, when we look at our church, we look at people, you see other people, you, you know, whatever it is, or even in your own life, it, it's, we don't, you know, it's not about us being thankful for what we can do for God, but it's being thankful for what he has done for us. Because if we're thankful for that, that leads us into the outward working of our salvation. And that's, that leads us to doing those things. But it's not about what we can do for him. It's about re realizing what he has done for us. And so Paul takes the Thessalonians back to the very basics of their salvation by reminding them of what it means to be in Christ. And, and, and Paul, not just here, but all through all of his writings, he consistently taught that salvation begins and ends with God that he does it all, that you don't do anything uh, to earn your way to salvation. You don't do anything to earn a ticket into heaven. You don't do anything to cleanse yourself, that he does it all. He does it all. And people can do nothing to be saved by their own merit. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about. For by grace are you saved through faith and and. and and not of yourselves, not of works, he, go, he says. That's a paraphrase, a shortened version of it. And so, it's, it's, he said, and by the way, he says in there, not of works so that no man can boast. And I think that's significant because when we stand before God, uh, we're not going to be able to say when, he, when, when we get to go into heaven, we're not going to be able to say, yeah, I made it. Jesus, you did most of it, but I did it. I made it. No, when we stand there, we're not going to be able to boast about anything that we have done. We're not going to be able to, we're not going to stand there and say, well, it was the grace of God and my good hard work. No, it, we'll, we'll stand there and realize very clearly we'll know. We already know now, but we'll know, I think, in a whole new way. This, I'm only making it in because of his grace. I think in that moment, we'll realize how unworthy we really are. And I think, you know, honestly, I think sometimes when we are walking on this earth and we're following Christ, it's really easy for us to sort of get disconnected with who we used to be. It's easy for us to forget just how much we've been forgiven. Or maybe, maybe you've got a different kind of testimony. Like, like my sister, you know, growing up, she never rebelled. I never heard her say anything, talk back to my parents. You make me so mad, you know, uh, but uh, you, you know, she never fell away from God. And, and that's a great testimony. It's funny though, because we hear all these spectacular testimonies and I've heard people say, well, I just don't have a very good testimony. I just was raised in church, never really did anything bad. I, you know, I'm just like, are you kidding me? That's the best testimony of all. That's the one I want for my kids. But, uh, but even, even if you have that testimony, when we stand before him, we're going to realize just how horrible and sinful we really were when he saved us. And, and so uh, it, it's just a, a gift of God. It's not of our own merit, merit and, but our part is just simply to accept God's gift of salvation. And that's not a work on our part to accept it. That's just simply saying yes. That's, that's all we do. There's, and there's no other way to, to receive forgiveness from sin. We, we do not earn God's love. 
We do not prove ourselves worthy of salvation by what we do for God, but His love and, and salvation are unmerited gifts of what God has done for us. And, and what, now there is a relationship to our works. That's, that's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we, we like to quote that one, but we should always quote it in verse 10 because verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us how we're saved, but Ephesians 2, 10 tells us why we're saved. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that we are not saved by works. But Ephesians 10, uh, 2, 10 tells us that we are saved for works, to do something. And, and so uh, our, our acts, our, our works of service, that sort of thing, they don't save us, but they do bear witness to our salvation. That's what, that's a lot of what James is, talks about when you read his letter, because he talks about faith without works is dead. That's, that's his whole point is that if you have true faith in Christ, if you truly are saved, then your life, the way you live, your actions, your works will bear witness to the salvation that you've already received. It's not that you were saved by your works, but you are saved and it shows up in your works and how you live. And so uh, our work for God bears witness for that, uh, to that inner transformation, but it can never be relied upon as, as a basis for our assurance. You know, I don't have assurance from God because I look at my life and say, well, I, I, feel, I feel assurance because I've been going to church and I've been paying my tithes. I've been doing good things. No, I feel assurance because of the grace of God. That's it. Those things should come. Those other things should come. But that's not where my assurance lies. So Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers that their salvation is not dependent on, the, on their not letting go of God. You know, I, I've heard this, and I think there's some, you know, there's not necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. But you hear people say, man, I'm just going to hang on to God. I'm not going to let go of God. But, you know, again, my salvation does not depend on whether I can hang on to God. It, it, it's, it hinges on the fact that God's not going to let me go. Which is good news because his grip is a lot stronger than mine. Can I get an amen? So uh, present and future persecution and suffering should not lead to panic because we know that since we are in his grip, since he saved us, since he did all the work, we know that he will finish what he started in us. That's what gives us assurance. If it was up to me, and if I had to earn my salvation, then it's up to me to furnish my own assurance and to get through the hard times. But since he did the work, since he's the one that's, that's carrying me through, I don't have to panic when my life feels like it goes haywire because I know my life is in his hand and he's going to finish the work that he started. And even if I never see relief from the suffering that I'm experiencing right now, I know my eternal destiny. I know where I'm going to end up. And that's what helps carry me through. So in light of that, then, therefore, believers should stand firm, as Paul says. Their, their faith should be in the one who will win the battle. And, and so uh, we know that he can be trusted to, to bring us into heaven no matter what happens on this earth. But there's also something else here. There, Paul provides a, a very stark contrast between those who perish. If you remember, I don't know if you'll remember last week we looked at 
he said that there, there, there are those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth. That's, that's why they were facing judgment. Now, Paul says, he's bringing up the fact that, they are, that those who are saved, they're saved, he said, by, this, by being sanctified by the Spirit, but also by believing the tr- in the truth. So you see the two contrasts there. Those that are judged are judged because they refuse to accept the truth. Those that are saved are saved in part because they believe the truth. So now you can see the, the, the uh, uh, relationship between what he just talked about with the Antichrist and those that are being judged uh, in that process and what he's talking about here because one group rejected the truth, the other group received the truth. So in both cases, though, we as human beings make a deliberate choice whether to accept or, or reject the gospel. And, and we know the Spirit woos us. The Spirit's the one that draws us to Jesus. The Spirit is the one who, who convicts us of our sin. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The Spirit is the one who saves us. The Spirit is the one who keeps us. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. All of these things. And our part is simply to put our faith in Christ and believe the truth. Now, there are those out there that say, no, uh, they, they teach the doctrine of, of, of election. Uh, well, I, I should say, shouldn't say that because we all have a doctrine of election, but, but they teach a preordained election of God. And, and, uh, um, and, and they say, well, no, because if you make a decision, that's a work on your part. If you put your faith in Jesus and that saves you, then you did something to earn your salvation. But my, my answer to that is very simply, Paul in the book of Romans especially, works very, very hard to make the point that faith is not a work. Because he says we are saved by faith, not by works. So you see, and that's also in Ephesians 2. So you see, he's making a very clear distinction that faith is not a work. Therefore, putting my faith in Jesus is not earning my salvation. That's just simply me receiving it. You know, if if somebody comes to your house... And uh, they say, hey, man, I've got a brand new car for you. Here are the keys. And you reach out your hand and they, and they put the keys in your hand. By receiving that, did you do anything to earn that gift? No, all you did was just say yes. Uh, uh, yes. I, I, and, and with Jesus, we say yes. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that what you did really accomplished what you said it accomplished. And so I trust you. And that's putting our faith in Him. And that's how we're saved. And so salvation comes to those who believe in the truth. And then he talks about sanctified by the Spirit. In, in that moment, that's where a process begins. We've talked about this some in recent weeks. Uh, but the process begins by which believers are made holy, which means we're made like Christ. In, in, and so that's the process called sanctification. And there are different stages of it. When we get saved, we are, we are made righteous. We're made clean. And that's, that's positional sanctification where we're moved from being in a position of being sinful and, and enemies of God to being made holy and in, in His presence and in His eyes and, and uh, children of God. But then after that, there is a gradual lifelong process of the, he changes the way we think, he, and that leads to a change in the way we talk and the cha- change in the way we live. And that's that gradual li- lifelong process that will be completed when, when we see Christ face to face. Until I see Him, whether by rapture or the grave, until I see Christ, His work of changing me 
and sanctifying me is not over and it continues until that day. But when I do see him, the Bible says that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that tells me that my sanctification at that moment, my salvation will finally be complete. That's the thing. Did you realize your salvation is not complete? Now, the provision for it is complete. I'm not saying that you're only partially saved. Well, I guess kind of in a way I am. But let me put it this way. How many of you still have aches and pains in your body? <laughs> well, that got a real response there. That, was, that wasn't even an amen. That was just a groan. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we, we all, this body, as Paul said it, day by day, we are wasting away. So this body has not received its salvation yet, right? So my soul is, is saved. My, my spirit is in communion with the Father. I am saved, and yet I'm going to be saved. And, and that's what happens when he returns, when we see him face to face. Paul uh, talks about how God's call to these Thessalonians came through his human messengers, Paul and his companions. Verse 14, he said, He called you to this, talking about salvation, through our gospel. Now, when he says our gospel, he's not talking about gospel he made up, or he's talking about the gospel that he preached, the gospel of, of the followers of Christ. He said, he called you th to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is really quite a verse right there. So let's look at it. God worked through Paul and Silas and Timothy and maybe others to tell the good news to the Thessalonians. And he did it, why? So that the Thessalonians might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll come to that in a moment, but when we say share in the glory, it doesn't mean in the sense that we're going to get up on the throne with Jesus and say, hey, scoot over, I'm going to share in your glory here. That's not what it, what it means at all. But but think. let's think of it like this. The Thessalonians were facing persecution for their faith. And, and Paul had just finished describing a time on earth uh, of even more intense persecution and, and intense su suffering as the judgment of God is poured out. Yet, he's making it clear to them that, that there was no doubt about the outcome of all of this. So, so the Thessalonians had responded to the calling of the gospel, but they were becoming unsettled and fearful, and so they were failing to live in the security and the assurance of the gospel. And those who believe will, he said, will share in Christ's glory when he comes to restore justice on the earth. And what does that mean? I think it just simply means that as he's glorified in us, as we stand before him and all creation sees what Christ has done in us, that he will be glorified in that, in that, and in that process, we will reflect his glory back to him as we praise him. That, that in a sense, we're included in the process of, of him being glorified. But here's the thing about this, what Paul talks about here, he took the gospel to them. The plan of God has not changed. It's still the same plan. God still invites people through the simple gospel message of, of salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. And he still uses human vessels that have experienced God's grace to carry that message to the lost. It's really simple. It's, it's just simply, think of it like this. If you, if you were fighting some 
horrible disease and, and you found the cure for that disease, you would want everybody who had that disease to hear about what you had discovered. I want you to know you can find healing. You can be free from this disease. Here's the answer. And so we have this disease called sin that eats away at, our, at, at us. And, and we have found the cure for that disease of sin, the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers through the grace of Jesus. And so our response is just simply because we have received it, we want everybody who suffers from this disease of sin to find the cure. And that's, that's really what it's all about. And that's the plan of God. And, and there's no backup plan. You know, I, I've, I don't know why he didn't. He, he could have done it. He could have just said, you know what? I'm going to have an angel appear to every human being and present the gospel. And then they'll make their choice and it's done. But for whatever reason, in his wisdom, and how many of you know there are a lot of, a lot of uh, things that God does and a lot of decisions he make, makes that I don't understand? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But in his wisdom, for whatever reason, he has said, here's what I'm going to do. Those that I save, I'm going to call them in and include them in the process of making the gospel known. And reconciling the rest of humanity to me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe part of the reason is because when another human talks to a human who has found grace, it adds a little credibility in their mind to say, man, this guy has been where I've been. I don't know. But, but that's still God's plan. The, the privilege. And we, we talk a lot about responsibilities. And I think it is a responsibility, but I think it's more than that. The privilege of all believers is to take the message of the gospel to a lost and sinful world and to find others to, to join the, uh, uh, us in, in glorifying Christ. That's the answer. You know, we get, so, we get so tied up. We get angry at people and get frustrated in their sin. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're... Maybe, maybe you're different. Maybe you're better off than me. But there are times when I find myself seeing something on TV and I look at it and I'm like so frustrated because it's so evil, so dark. And, and the, the person who's saying it is so far from God. And, and, and it's easy to begin to kind of look at them sort of like the enemy and you get angry at them. But I have to rem remind myself that is a person who needs Jesus. You know, th these people in Kansas City who were involved in the shooting today, it's easy to get really angry at them and say, you know, say, well, how can they do such a horrible evil thing but the truth is they need jesus that's the cure that's the only way and so we need to understand that it's not just our responsibility but this is a privilege that god has called us into and that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation he's given us the privilege of of being able to help people be reconciled to god and find freedom so Paul, in response to all this, tells the believers to stand firm and to keep a strong grip. This is what he said in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. I like how it reads in the New Living Translation because I think it, it really captures the uh, a picture for us. This is what it says in that translation. 
With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on everything we taught you, both in person and by letter. Keep a strong grip. He's, I mean, that's a picture of like, we, we read hold fast and it's like, oh, that sounds so poetic and so pretty. But he's saying, he's saying here, everything that you have learned, everything that I've taught you, you grab onto that with all of your might. Keep a strong grip on that. Paul knew that the Thessalonians would, would face pressure. Pressure from persecution, pressure from, from false teachers, pressure from worldliness, pressure from their own apathy, all of these kind of things. There'd be pressure to waver from the truth and to leave the faith. And that's, that's true for every one of us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it later, but we're, we're all involved in spiritual warfare. We, 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 we think of spiritual warfare as praying for somebody else. And that's, that's an, one element of spiritual warfare. But the biggest battle of spiritual warfare in your life every day goes on between your ears. It's, it's your battle to pursue Christ and not to give in to the apathy that, that life wants to uh, seep into your life. That, and the, the enemy, that's where he fights us. He wants us to grow comfortable and relax and just sort of get used to things and begin to coast. And, 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 and he wants, Paul is trying to get across here. He's saying, listen, you need to stand firm. Yeah, I know you're facing suffering. You're being persecuted. These are hard times, but you need to stand firm. You need to stand up and, and be strong in this. And he said, in the way you're going to hang on, you're going to be, be able to make it through is to get a strong grip on everything we taught you and don't let it go, no matter what. With, 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 keep the strong grip. Here's the thing. The only effective means by which to confront error is to stand firm and to hold on to the truth. We have this, this kind of uh, uh, tenacity, uh, well, I should say, to have this kind of tenacity and resolve against the strong winds of false teaching, which, you know, I won't say that there's more false teaching in the world today. What I will say is we have more access to false teaching than ever before. It's easier to get to, for the false teachers to get to you. you know, it used to be, back like in Paul's day, the false teacher had to maybe write a letter, it had to show up in the church physically. Don't have to do that anymore. He can just sit in his living room and teach all kinds of false things and it goes out all over the world. And, and so uh, if, if to have the kind of tenacity that Paul's talking about and resolve against the strong winds of false teaching and the strong winds of persecution, here's what, here's what has to happen. Believers must know what they believe and why they believe it. A lot of Christians, uh, maybe they've ironed out a lot of the what they believe part, but they haven't figured out the why they believe it part. You know, it's like, well, because that's uh, it's what my pastor said or it's what my parents taught me. Listen, we got to know more. We, we got to be anchored in the word of God and the truth much more than that. We got to know what God said about it. So the, we know the Thessalonians received uh, much teaching significant amount of teaching in person uh, even though Paul was there for a short time because he keeps referring back to these things that he says you know when I was there I taught you this and and so he, he taught them a lot but he also they had also learned from his previous letter to them and so they had a very deep reservoir of truth from which to drink 
And Paul is saying they would need to hold on to that truth that they had been taught if they're going to make it through. You know what? It takes faith to hold on when persecution becomes intense. It is an act of faith to continue to work for God no matter what happens. It is an act of faith to keep moving forward when you're enduring suffering. It's an act of faith to be obedient in the midst of the most difficult times that you've ever had in your life. It's an act of faith to hold on to what you know is true when you don't see any apparent benefit to holding on. How many of you know sometimes you can hold on to the truth but and you know it's true, but sometimes the only thing that comes out of that is hard times. You know, especially in other countries where persecution comes. The, the kind of this kind of faith comes from knowing what we believe and knowing why we believe it. To, to believe in Jesus and to stand firm will take perseverance. And, and it doesn't matter if you're in living in America where it's really, frankly, easy to be a Christian, or you're living in Sudan where it can be deadly to be a Christian. But to, to, to walk and to live with, with this thing, to stand firm in the truth, it will require perseverance because, I will tell you this, regardless, your faith will be challenged and your, your faith will be opposed. Maybe not by another person. You may be surrounded by people who encourage you that, but your faith will be challenged and your faith will be opposed. Severe trials may come. And you know what I found about trials is that they tend to sift true Christians from fair-weather believers. But enduring to the end, again, it does not earn salvation for us. But the assurance of our salvation and the assurance of what He's what he's got in plan for us, what he has in store for us, that will keep us going through those times of suffering. Because Christ lives in us, we can remain courageous and hopeful all the way to the end. And, and without this enduring faithfulness, we could easily be just blown away. We could be blown away by the winds of temptation and false teaching and persecution. And you know, I believe that the contemporary church would do well to heed Paul's admonition to cling tightly to what has been handed down by the apostles and prophets. What has been handed down to us by the apostles and prophets? What's that? I, so I think I heard somebody say it. The, the Word, the Bible. That's what's been handed down. The, and, this is, and I've said this before. This is, this is why it's so critical for us your faith is going to be challenged. You've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. And that is found in the Word of God. That's not found in my preaching or my Bible teaching. I'm going to give you the best I got. I'm going to help you, try to help you grow roots that are deep. But you have got to know it. And this is what I believe, uh, by and large, and I could be wrong, but this is my perception anyway, that the church in America, this is where we really struggle because there are many, many Christians that don't know the Word of God, all they know is their favorite verses, their, their coffee cup verses. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that sound really good on a coffee cup or on a t-shirt or something. And we don't know the other ones. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't put the ones on there about where, where Jesus said, in this world you will, you will suffer persecution. You know, you don't, you, how many of you have ever seen that on a coffee mug before? 
You know, we, we don't like those, but we've got to know what's there. This, in fact, this is one of the reasons why, you know, leading into this year that I'm really have been encouraging us as a church to read through the word. Now, I don't think there's any, any special thing about being able to end of the year saying, I read through the entire Bible this year. I don't, I don't think that's, that's not the goal. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to help us as a church, as individual believers, get into the word. To be in it every day, to be paying attention to what God says, to get it inside of us and, and, and to let the word work in us. And, and actually, I mean, the truth is the, uh, after this, and I, and I think it's good to, it's good to have a plan and to maybe read through the whole Bible in a year, but, but maybe in that, what you read during the day or during your plan, maybe you read that one verse that the Holy Spirit just draws your attention to. So you, you finish your reading, but go back to that one. Spend time on that. I mean, honestly, the way I historically have done my time in the Word is, is I would just read until something, something stopped me. I'd read until something just sort of jumped out, and that's when I would stop. It might be, there are times when it'd be two verses in, and I stop, because that's the point where when it sort of leaps off the page, you know what I'm talking about, that, that, that that's when I stop and say, okay, okay, God, this is, this is what I, where I hear you speaking. I need to focus on this, and I begin to pray about it, begin to think about what that means. Uh, now, you know, nothing wrong with saying, well, I finished the whole chapter, but I'm going to go back to that one. Because the, the whole thing is we got to get the word of God in us, because if we don't, if we don't know the truth, how in the world are we ever going to cling tightly to it? The, the problem is the appetite of many Christians is to be constantly on the lookout for some new thing to breathe life into the church or to breathe life into their walk with Christ. And they want the new thing, the hottest thing, the sensational thing. But according to Paul, the answer will not come in finding some something new. It's not going to come in some grand new revelation or that sort of thing. But it will come when the church renews its focus on something old, the scripture. That's where the answers are. And unless the church is grounded in truth, it will continue to be vulnerable to false teaching. So we should hold on to the truth of Christ's teaching. Why? Because our very lives depend on it. Let's go on. Verse 16, Paul's prayer. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Now, this prayer is actually very similar to the one that's at the end of the, the main section in the first letter to the Thessalonians. And, and through God's grace, through His grace, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, He said, give us eternal encouragement. Now, that word eternal, uh, doesn't, it, 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 just, it, it just means lasting. Uh, encouragement, hope, and strength. And He actually says... Uh, it actually says uh, good hope, good hope, which is very interesting because that's not a phrase that appears elsewhere in the Bible, but it does appear in other places in Greek literature. And it, and it refers to a hope of, of life after death. So we know what he's talking about here. 
that he's talking about a hope that goes beyond this, this world. So he gives these things to us. Uh, I read that mariners, seamen, uh, that they, they will tell you that the best way to keep from getting seasick is to keep your eyes on the horizon. You know, but if you start looking at the water and the moving and that sort of thing, that's when it really, you really struggle. Uh, but so they, that's what they say. They say, if you want to avoid getting seasick, keep your eyes on the horizon. And when, when, when everything is shifting around you, you must find something stable on which to fix your eyes. And the same is true when it comes to living out our faith. If there's anything certain about our lives, it's that our lives are uncertain. That's the only certain thing. The only thing I'm absolutely sure about is that life is unsure. And in the midst of an uncertain world, we, we need something certain on which to fix our eyes. And as Paul demonstrates in his prayer for the, Thess- to the, for the Thessalonians, our certainty comes from the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Christianity is not a faith of questions and worries. It's not a faith uh, in which believers must wait until the end and see if we make it. Instead, believers are given hope and encouragement through the certainty of God's promises. We can fix our eyes on Jesus, and that's what keeps us stable when our lives are tossed on the waves of this life. That's what gives us hope and strength. In Hebrews 12, that's exactly what it says. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It also makes me think of long-distance runners because, uh, you know, I've never been a runner. Never will be. Uh, I'm an avid non-runner. You know, that's that's a, if you see me running, call 911 because something really bad is chasing me. Uh, that's just the reality of it. And just most of you can outrun me, so you'll be safe. But just call 911 while you outrun me. That's all I ask. But but um, I have heard long distance runners talk about uh, the, that one of the strategies they use is that when they're running, they will Instead of, you know, say they're running a marathon or something like that, and it's just, you know, it's a ridiculous number. If God wants me to travel 26 miles, he's going to give me a car to do it. That's how I see it. But, but, but they don't think about the finish line at the end of 26 and whatever how, uh, fraction miles. But what they do when they're running, they look down on the horizon and they'll pick some landmark and they'll run to that. They keep their eyes on that goal. And that's what we have to do. We, we can't see the end of everything, but we can see Jesus. So we fix our eyes on Him. And that gives us strength. That gives us hope. That keeps us going. But I want you to notice something in this. And this is, part, this is the part of this passage that really kind of struck me, got my attention as, in, in preparation. I want you to notice what's absent from Paul's prayer request for these Thessalonians. What's absent is he he does not ask God to lift their burdens or to judge their persecutors. He does not pray for them and say, my prayer is that all the suffering and persecution will go away. They could have prayed for that, but that's not what he prayed for. 
Instead, Paul prays specifically for God to encourage their hearts and strengthen them in every good deed and word. I think there are reasons for it. Number one, it's in the difficult times that we grow the most, that we learn the most. That's when we, we, we are strengthened more during those times than in any other time. And when you're going through the darkest, deepest valley of your life, those are the times that when you seek God, you find a new level of intimacy that you've never known before. And so Paul, if he prayed, well, I'm just going to be praying that all of your troubles go away. He'd be praying that they would be spiritually stunted. But that's not what he prayed. He said, listen, you're going to go through some stuff. I know you're going through some stuff now. I know it's hard and it's getting worse. But I'm praying that God will encourage you. Wow. I don't know about you, but I like it when I get encouragement from other people. I've had a, a couple people do a couple things, you know, like uh, uh, that, that were very encouraging the last several days. But you know what I really need? I need to be encouraged by God. And he, and he, he prayed for that God would encourage their hearts. And he prayed that God would strengthen them. In every good deed and word, we need supernatural strength if we're going to stand firm. That's that's the one of the most important things that we need to learn tonight is that we talk about standing firm and holding fast. But I want you to know you can't do that on your own. It's not again. It's not about you holding on to God. It's about him holding on to you. You need supernatural strength if you're going to do it, because the truth is. Even the strongest people in the world, the strongest Christian, you know, the most spiritual man or woman, the greatest woman of God or man of God you've ever known. I'm here to tell you, I guarantee that there are times when they get tired. There are times when they are weary. There are times when they just don't have the strength to carry on. But God's power and strength never diminish. That's what I love about Isaiah chapter 40. One of my absolute favorite passages of scripture. Very famous. You'll know it. Isaiah 40 verses 28 through 31. Isaiah writes this. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not faint, nor is he weary? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives power to the faint and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? Because they got strong all of a sudden in their own strength? No, because they trusted in God. To wait on God literally means to trust Him, that you're not running out in front of Him. You're not trying to take care of things. You're not trying to manipulate the situation. You are waiting on Him and you say, Lord, I trust you. I don't have any strength left. I'm like that young man that I'm just falling by the wayside. I don't have strength to keep going. And God says, listen, because you waited on me, I'm going to give you my strength. I'm going to give you supernatural strength. And you're going to do things that you could never do. You're going to mount up and fly like an eagle. The good news, he is never too tired 
to help. And even better news is he's never too busy to help. And when you feel all of life crushing you, I know you've been there. Everybody in this room, I'm looking around, everybody here is probably old enough that you have those, you can remember those times. Maybe you're even going through it now, but you can remember those times when it just felt like life was crushing you. Have you ever been there where it just was hurt so much that you just can't even breathe? And when all of life is crushing you and you think, man, I just, I just can't go another step. I want you to remember, you can call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You can wait on Him. You can trust Him. And He will renew your strength. Hoping and waiting on the Lord means expecting that His promise of strength will help us rise above life's distractions and difficulties. It means trusting God, which means trusting in His Word, which means having peace in our lives because we know what He said He's going to do. So depend on God. Everybody, as I said, we all need, we need to be encouraging one another and we need the encouragement of other people. But depend on God to be your, your main source of encouragement. Look to Him. He won't fail you. Let's close with this, with uh, the verses one through five, because Paul moves from praying for the Thessalonians and now he's going to ask them to pray. He's going to give them a prayer request. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Not uh, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perse perseverance. What a, what a great verse. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. We'll come to that in a moment. But here, here is Paul, uh, as Paul prepared to offer the final words of advice in teaching to the Thessalonians, he first asked them to pray for him. And, and for his fellow missionaries. First of all, it's always comforting to me to know that Paul needed people praying for him too. And I say that because, you know, sometimes when you're the pastor, you're like, well, I, I need to be praying for people, but it's okay for me to say, I need your, your prayers. And, and, the, and the focus of Paul's desire and the focus of his prayer, he said, I want you to pray that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Now, the, the Greek word for spread rapidly actually was a word used that kind of had, to, it pictured a runner in a race, uh, perhaps like, like one who would, who would uh, participate in the races in the Isthmian Games, which were, which were games that, like Olympic type games that they actually held there in Corinth. And that's where Paul was writing from. So he may have seen one of these races and that may have given him the inspiration to, to phrase it like this. But Paul said, he, he sees the message running across the known world. Finding converts in every place, just like it had in Thessalonica. And he's saying, Let, pray that the word of God will just run rampant. And in the same way that you responded, that other people will, will respond. 
the, the preaching of the gospel in that way would result in honor being given to the Lord because of the marvelous results of the lives of those who believe. So Paul wanted the Thessalonians to pray for God's power to intervene in other places so that many would be saved and God would, would be glorified, just as it had happened in Thessalonica. And let me just add this. This isn't part of what I, wanted, what I planned on teaching, but I'll just add this. I think it's also significant because whenever you're suffering, like the Thessalonians were, it's very, very easy to get self-centered and to begin to think about all the things you're dealing with. And in that process, it can give birth, uh, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it can give birth to a pity party. Has anybody been there? One of the best things you can do when you're hurting is to begin to pray for other people, serve other people. Because when you get your eyes off of yourself, you, you'll, you, listen, when you say, I'm going to serve Jesus by touching other people's lives, I guarantee you, Jesus is going to, he's going to anoint that. He's going to fill you with strength. It changes your perspective. Now you're not focusing on you. You're focusing on the Lord and what he, what he can do in the lives of the other people. In addition to praying for more converts, Paul asked the believers to pray that he and his companions would be delivered from wicked and evil people. Now, those words in Greek, wicked and evil, are actually just equivalents. So it's not likely that Paul was thinking specifically about any certain group of people. But, you know, from his experience, even there in Thessalonica, he knew that there were people who were, who were wicked and evil that... that uh, it was a threat to his well-being in his life. And so that's what he was really praying about. And, 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 but one of the things we learn from that is as the gospel message advances, it always faces severe opposition. In some places in the world, it faces severe physical opposition. But regardless, it always faces severe spiritual opposition. Always. The, the spiritual battle rages intensely for people's souls and, and here's what I, I have come to believe with all my heart is, is that Satan does not let go of his own very easily. Because, you know, what is the Corinthians? I think it's Corinthians that says that, that Paul says that, the, that uh, the people who are unsaved in this world, he says that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. So if they're of the world and he's the God of this world, then they belong to him. They're child of, of the darkness and and, and it, he doesn't worry about them. You know, he, he doesn't want them to prosper, but he didn't care about them. But when we preach the gospel to them and, they, and the Holy Spirit begins to shine the light on that truth and something begins to awaken within them, he doesn't want that. He fights that. And so Paul said, listen, I want you to join with me in this battle for the souls of mankind. And if Paul recognized the need for prayer as, as, as he, they shared their faith, how much more should believers today pray for one another as we shake, seek to share the gospel with each other? You know, one of the things that we should be praying for for each other, I, we pray for each other for all kinds of things, don't we? And we should. We pray for healing. We pray for strength. We pray for encouragement. But we also should be praying, God, use them to to uh, spread the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would make hearts open for them as they go about their daily business, that they'll be people who make a difference for the kingdom of God. 
You know, beneath the surface of the routine daily routine of daily life, a fierce struggle between invisible spiritual powers rages. rages. We, we know this. We mentioned it earlier. And one of the great weapons we have, we really have, really have two offensive weapons. When you read about the armor of God, what's, what's, the, what's the one offensive weapon that's mentioned in the armor of God? Armor of God? Anybody remember? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Which, by the way, even Jesus Himself, when He was in a pitched battle with the enemy on the, in His 40-day fast in the wilderness, when the enemy came to tempt Him, how did He respond? He quoted Scripture. He did not try it. He did not say, you know, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to just ignore this. No, he just, he quoted Scripture. He said, no. He's saying, in essence, you know, what Jesus was saying was, every time Satan tempted, he, the essence of it, what he was saying, okay, that would be really, that sounds good, but this is what the Bible says. So I'm going to do what the Bible says. Because every temptation that comes your way sounds good to your flesh. If it didn't, it wouldn't be tempting. Right? But we say no to the temptation by saying, Okay, this really is appealing to me, but this is what the Word of God says. So we quote it out loud. And when we quote it out loud and we begin to use that Word of God, it begins to be used like a sword, like a weapon, spiritually speaking. But the other weapon we have is prayer. And we need to seek His face. Christians are Satan's prime targets. Because they are, they are followers of his avowed enemy. And, and I, want, I want to give you some guidelines that may help you prepare for and survive spiritual attacks of the enemy. First thing is this. Take the threat of spiritual attack seriously. Don't, don't pretend like this is no big deal. Take it seriously. Now, don't get overwhelmed. Don't, don't go so overboard. You know, I've known people that got so caught up in spiritual warfare and that sort of thing that they started looking for demons everywhere. Don't look for demons. You don't need to look for demons. Look for Jesus. You know, but take it seriously. Realize this is a real thing. Realize that there's a battle going on for your soul and the souls of the people around you. So take it seriously. Number two, pray for strength and help from God. Realize that you can't win a spiritual battle in the flesh. You, you ask, uh, ask him for strength and help. Number three, study the Bible to recognize Satan's style and, and tactics. Study the Bible. Be, and the re, let me put it this way. When you study the word of God, when you get it in you, you kind of even, it's, let's just say it's easier to recognize God when you have his word in you. And so you're not fooled by the counterfeit. And so uh, you're able to see the subtle ways the enemy tries to get in when you study the Bible. Here's a, here's a good one. This is something that the older you get, the harder it gets, but still important. Memorize scripture. Memorize scripture. Because that's going to be a source of help no matter where you are. Here's, here's what I found. Satan doesn't always tempt me when I have my Bible with me. Right? And even when I do have my Bible with me, 
Maybe I can't find the verse I need to find. But, but especially if you know areas of temptation in your life, memorize what God's Word says about those things so it's ready. Memorize the Word of God. Here's the next one. Associate with those who speak the truth. The, the Bible says, and this is actually quoting a proverb of the day, that bad company corrupts good character. Now, I want to say this, I don't think the Bible ever teaches that you're supposed to completely isolate yourself from people who, are, who don't know Christ, because then how can you be salt and light? I don't think that's what it says. But I think you have to be careful who you allow into a position in a relationship in your life where you give them a place of influence. You need to be careful with that. And so you need to associate with and allow those people who do speak truth to, to be an influence in your life. And then the last one, and this is one that we kind of, we know it, but we kind of forget. We forget that this is really a part of spiritual warfare. And that is practice what you learn from the Word of God. Practice, because listen, if I learn it, but I don't put it into practice, then I'm walking in disobedience. I'm already losing the battle. Anyway. Let's go on. Verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, there's a, there's a play on words that doesn't come through in, in the English. Uh, because in verse 2, it talks about faith. And it uses the word, it talks about the, the, there are those without faith. And it uses the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And in verse 3, it uses the word faithfulness. It's talking about the Lord's faithfulness. And it uses the word pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. Now, to the reader of Greek, they see this and they see the similarity. They, go, they, they catch the wordplay there very easily. We don't see it so much. And he says, while many people may, may be without faith, it does not change the fact that the Lord is faithful. In fact, you can even apply that. I feel like you can apply that to your own life because there have been times in my life that I have been without faith. Anybody else? But even in those moments, it did not change the fact that the Lord was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, God will strengthen and protect us from the evil one. He, he, and, and now that does not mean, when it says that he will strengthen and protect us, it does not mean that they will never face difficulties. Paul's made that really clear, even in, in writing to the Thessalonians. It, it just means that in, no matter what happens, whether it's good or bad, it just means that God is faithful. That's all it means. Through any situation, God can be depended on to strengthen and to protect his people. And by protect, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to make you comfortable, but he's going to protect your soul. He's going to keep you. He is faithful to finish the work. He's going to finish what he started in you. And, and although there, there have been and will always be persecutions, death and difficulties and suffering and problems and, and all of these things, there will be no ultimate defeat for the believer in Christ because God has already won the war. And the end result for all believers will be eternity with God. And that promise will never change. Yet even so, prayer is a vital factor behind all of this, all of this activity. I need to, I need to uh, find a way to land this thing. Um, Let's just go to verse 5. It says, May the Lord 
direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. I love that. He says, may the Lord direct your heart in, into two things, God's love and Christ's perseverance. Understanding God's love and remembering Christ's perseverance and His endurance enables us to face and overcome life's difficulties. I want to focus in on the second one, Christ's perseverance, because I think most of us were like, okay, I get God's love, but what is he talking about there with Christ's perseverance? Christ endured tremendous suffering for us. And as a result, when, when we turn our hearts to that, when we see the suffering, we see what he endured, then that can be an, ins an ins inspiring example for believers who face suffering and persecution. Because Christ, I mean, think about it. We know all, all these things. He was ridiculed. He was whipped. He was, he was beaten. He was spit upon. He was crucified. He was mocked. He was all of these things and more. And yet he did not give in to fatigue or to discouragement or to despair. He, he never quit. He never gave up. We, we all know the old song. He could have called 10,000 angels and to destroy the world and set himself free. He could have, but he didn't quit. He didn't give up. He endured it all. So Hebrews 12 again. He, he endured the cross and, and suffered its shame. And so by focusing on what Christ did and, and what he did on our behalf, then we won't grow weary and give up. Uh, trials can cause us to become discouraged. It can even lead us to a place of despair. And during these difficult times, we really need to remember how Christ endured. And we will remember that He didn't give up, that He suffered these things. This is ex exactly what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. When we look to Him and we see that He didn't give up, that He endured it, that encourages us so that we can endure in that, in that moment as well. Because the truth is, Christ's suffering surpassed any suffering that we could possibly face. Because, because think about this. His suffering was not simply physical suffering. That was intense already. That was more than any of us can begin to imagine. But he who knew no sin, became sin for us. I think that's a level, level of suffering that we can't comprehend because we have never been without sin. And when we face hardship and discouragement and, and persecution and all of, this, all of these things, we, we must not lose sight of the big picture. We, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because in that moment, when we remember what He has done, when we remember what He endured, we remember that we are not alone, that Jesus stands with us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, As we, we're just thankful, Lord. We're just thankful that as You call us to stand firm and to hold fast to the truth, to get a strong grip on those things that You've taught us. We're thankful, God, that we don't have to do it on our own, that we can look to You and we find supernatural strength and that, God, when we are weary, that You become strong and that when we wait upon You, that You will renew our strength. We'll rise up with wings as eagles. We'll run and not grow weary. We'll walk and not faint. God, we thank You for that strength. 
And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody that's going through difficulties, and I know some are, I pray, Lord, that they would look to you, that they would trust you, they would wait on you. And as they do, God, that even tonight you'd begin to renew their strength, that they would say, no, because of the Spirit's work in me, because I can see what Christ has done for me, and, and I know that he didn't do that in vain. He did, he, he did that work to save me and to, to bring me home for eternity. Therefore, I will not quit. And with the Lord's help and with the strength of the Spirit and the, and the power of God working in me, I'm going to keep moving. And Lord, I pray that, that this would be a turning point for somebody as they hear this word. And we pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.